Scripture reading for this morning comes from Luke chapter 18, verses 9 through 14. To some who were confident of their own righteousness and looked down on everybody else, Jesus told this parable. Two men went up to the temple to pray, one a Pharisee and the other a tax collector. The Pharisee stood up and prayed about himself. God, I thank you that I am not like other men, robbers, evildoers, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week and give a tenth of all I get. But the tax collector stood at a distance. He would not even look up to heaven, but beat his breast and said, God, have mercy on me, a sinner. I tell you that this man, rather than the other, went home justified before God. For whoever, for everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, and he who humbles himself will be exalted. This is God's word. Let me just say that uh, my name is Sandash. My beautiful bride of 15 years is shiny. Our daughter, Sarala, she's 10, she's upstairs, right? Asher is eight, he is upstairs. We believe Sarala is a Christian. We believe Asher is slowly moving from Buddhism, maybe into Christianity, we're hoping lands there. And then our two and a half year old Suhana is hedging around the demonic area especially around three or four in the morning. It's, um, and in fact, she, she brings her father into that demonic dimension or four in the morning. But um, I could sit here and maybe give you a little bit of a pedigree, but um, really, I think the best thing I can tell you is that uh, Metro family is our friends. Um, we were honored to be part of the team uh, for a short season that launched Metro. And um, every time we come back, um, it just feels like we're visiting family. You know, it, it really does. It just feels just, just like that. And we don't always have that sense when we go to other churches. But here, it's just right away, we just feel at home. So we give God praise for that. Um, um, Donnie sent me a lot of text messages this morning uh, begging me to make sure I take care of the church he loves the most telling me that the Lord is bearing fruit there, but he said there's nothing like being home. So, again, he, he exhorted me to, he said, take care of my sheep. Uh, so, out of his shepherding heart, uh, I, I bring that encouragement to you. And, um, you know, the, the good thing about being friends is this. Whatever burdens my brother's heart burdens mine. It's not something I have to pray about. We're in relationship with each other. If he cares, I care. So I care, and we care deeply about you. And so we're here in the midst of a series that's considering what it means to be a Christian, and, and this is so timely, uh, to consider not only at Metro Pres locally, which I'm so glad Donnie's doing that, um, but in the church universal. Um, this is a time, and you know this, where there are so many things and issues and roles that are highly subjective and more relative than ever, in fact, increasingly relative. And so it's wise for us to wonder at such a time as this, what does it mean to even be a Christian? Tomorrow there's going to be, I don't know, you may have heard about it, a, some kind of a meeting we, all week long, and uh, there are going to be people 
of significant influence and power that are going to opine for lengthy periods of time, for a whole week, about the very things and roles that people last week are saying one thing, and this week they're going to say something else. And so that subjectivism, that relativism, there's going to be millions of people around the world with their eyes and ears on Philadelphia, not too far from here, for the rest of this week. And so you might, you might understand why I'm getting goosebumps to even think that here we're saying, what does it mean to be a Christian? You know, when there's so many churches, you know, there's Catholic church, there's Orthodox church, there's Protestant church, and then within each of those there are denominations. And then there's the non-denominational world, and that's a rainbow of fruit flavors. There are so many different kinds of churches that it can make someone easily confused as to think that Christian cultural participation or membership substitutes for being an actual Christian, being a follower of Jesus, being a disciple of Jesus. And so this series is timely, and I want to say that um, my brother and his care for me gave me a really easy passage. It's, it's just a few verses, and it truly gives us a hallmark of what it means to be a Christian. And I cannot stress enough how important this is foundationally. And so I'm going to say this twice because it's that important that we understand that we even begin to pray now, Lord, drive this deep into my heart. That to know what it means to be a Christian to know what it means to be a Christian, we must know what it means to be broken. And I'm going to say that one more time. Pray with me as you hear this. Because I suspect we can't understand anything in this book till we understand this foundational truth. To know what it means to be a Christian, we must know. We must know what it means to be broken. Now, this is a hard teaching. I did say to Donnie, really, you're going to give me the brokenness talk? You know, because if, if I can be honest with you, there are, I, I mean, I'm not a very creative type like all of you, but I have enough creativity to think of at least a few other things I'd rather be than being broken. But this passage of Scripture, indeed the whole Bible, but this passage of Scripture, as we take a microscope and zoom in, it tells us that without brokenness, listen, it's impossible to be a Christian. I'm going to say that again. Without brokenness, it is impossible to be a Christian. So we're sitting together, we're studying together and we are struggling together with Luke chapter 18, 9 to 14. And I want to suggest, because we're in Metro and we always go three deep, right? I want to suggest at least three things about what it means to be broken and therefore what it means to be a Christian. And first, we're going to see brokenness as a story. And we're going to see brokenness defined. Coming out of that story, what is brokenness? And then lastly, why is brokenness essential? Why is it important? Why is it critical to understanding what it means to be broken? So the story 
what it is, why it's essential. So first, the story. Here we go. Luke, in verse 9, tells us why Jesus tells this story. He says, To some who were confident of their own righteousness and looked down on everybody else, Jesus told this parable. You know, someone once wonderfully said this. They said, If you want someone to know the truth, tell them. But if you want someone to love the truth, tell them a story. And Jesus didn't want to just dispense information. This is not an account where Luke is interviewing Jesus. Jesus is sitting on a stool. Luke is talking to him. And Jesus says, well, there was this one time I was talking to these cats. They thought they were all that and then some. And I had to, you know, I had to tell them a story. No, it's not that at all. Luke gives us the reason. He says, here's what's going on. Now zoom in. Here's what Jesus does. You have to picture this. (laughs) Jesus knows his listeners. And he engages his listeners with a story. Jesus talks to them, not about them. That's critical. That's key. Jesus is entirely relational. This is not abstract. He knows and he cares for whom he's speaking to, and he tells them a story. Remember, Jesus is entirely relational because it's going to come again and again in this story. So, what's the story? Two men go to a church. One is a Pharisee, one is a tax collector. First, important thing to see. These two guys are going to church. That means this. We're not talking about the unchurched. We're not talking about the cats who are running up and down this beautiful, beautiful uh, sidewalk here by the water. We're not talking about the cats who hang out at Costco in the morning instead of go to church. Okay? We're talking about church people. We're talking about people like you and me. And that means what Jesus is about to say is profoundly, incredibly, and maybe even, as we go on, a little frighteningly relevant. If you have any church background at all in the 21st century, if any of you, any of you have any church background, you know that when you hear Pharisee and tax collector, you think that on the Sunday school exam you would say Pharisee bad, tax collector good. And yeah, I guess that'll work on an exam if you need it. I'm not telling you not to write that. Choose that. If that appears as a multiple choice, choose that answer. But what I want to say to you is we're trying to get out of the 21st century mindset. We're trying to put ourselves in that first century mindset, sitting there as Jesus tells us the story, and to the people listening, it was actually just the opposite. The Pharisee was the good guy. The very, very highly esteemed good guy. The religious leader, the pastor, the elders, the deacons. The Pharisees were the good guys, and they were respected by the people of Israel. And the tax collectors were considered not just bad guys, very, very wicked, wicked men. Why? 
Because the tax collectors, in collecting taxes from their own people, okay, the tax collectors were Jewish, they were collecting taxes from the Jews, but they paid Rome for the ability, for permission to raise the taxes so that they could take, skim some off the top and fund an army that was raping and murdering hundreds and thousands of their own people. The tax collectors were traitors to their own people. So in real time, as Jesus tells this story, it is absolutely clear to everyone listening, the Pharisee is the good guy and that freaking tax collector, the scum of the earth. Now, they're both up in church because you got to go up, and they both pray. And the Pharisee goes first in verse 11. Listen to this prayer. The Pharisee stood up and prayed about himself. God, I thank you that I am not like other men, robbers, evildoers, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week and give a tenth of all I get. So four words deep into this prayer, perfect. Absolutely perfect. God, I thank you. But it generally, when you hear teaching about this in churches, people say, but at the fifth word and afterwards, it just goes south. The bottom falls out. It's a really, really bad prayer. Don't pray. Don't do this at home. It's just terrible. Don't do this at home. Don't do this at church. It is the prayer not to follow. But I want to ask you something. Is it really? Is it really? Now consider our climate, everything that Brian just prayed about. It's highly charged right now. Socioeconomically and politically, the polarizing issues, it's, people are on edge, like you wouldn't believe. We spent last weekend with friends of ours who are cops, cops for 20 years, and driving with him this time, it just felt like you know, we were going to a store and he wanted to ride in his cop car. I felt like a target. We're just going to Target. Ironically, we're going to Target. I, I, I didn't make that up. That's a real story. But we were going in his cop car, and I felt like, Oh my gosh, is, are people going to... It's that highly charged. So let me ask you, if we're honest, take off the Christianese, okay? And let's keep it on the real. You tell me, what's wrong with a man, a man who doesn't steal, doesn't extort others, doesn't cheat on his wife, and instead of doing what... Instead of not doing those things, what he does is he fasts twice a week and he regularly gives money and offering. You tell me what's wrong with that. You tell me which pastor on this planet would not want a man like that in his church. A man. Forget the women for a second. I'm just talking about men. Which pastor wouldn't like someone who doesn't do the wrong things and fasts twice a week and gives regularly to offering? This is a good dude. Do you know that the two sermon series that pastors all across America find most difficult to stir up enthusiasm from their congregants about? Do you know what the two series are? It's fasting and tithing. For some reason, pastors all across America say, I just can't get my people excited about fasting and tithing. It's the one where people are just like, man, how, it's a 12-week series for real? <laughs> right? I mean, my food... And we know how, at least in the old, I don't know about now, but in the old days, you know how Metro rolled. After the benediction, we took care of our food thing. 
right? Our food and our money to be open-handed about that? What's wrong? In my opinion, not much. If I went to my friend and said, hey man, as a cop, would you want more men like this around? My, my friend would say, yeah and no. And what he would say is, yes, it'd make my job easier, but it'd also make it real boring. <laughs> and nobody doing nothing wrong. What am I doing here? Right? Now, I do admit that this prayer gets a little shady, okay? I'm not saying it's a perfect prayer. In fact, I told you, don't do this at home, okay? It does get a little shady because he says, you know, I'm not like adulterers, I'm not an extortionist, I'm not unjust, I'm not an evildoer, I don't steal. And then he goes, and I'm not like uh, this, this guy, this traitor, this scum over here, I'm not like him. And that's shady, okay? I mean, in the middle of engaging God, right, it's just, it's just weird and shady that he goes, at least I'm not like this punk, you know? Because, you know, comparison, no one usually, and especially if you're Asian, especially, because we get compared all the time, and we do comparisons all the time, but nobody usually likes to be on the receiving end of comparison, unless you're winning, right? Unless you're coming out looking good, who likes to be on the receiving end of comparison? And if somebody's, you know, doing that with God, you're only going to lose if you're on the receiving end. So I'm saying there's a little bit of shadiness to the prayer. But I'm asking you to just think, what are the people who are listening thinking that Jesus is saying about this prayer? And we don't know until we hear the tax collector's prayer, which is very, very different. Verse 13, listen to this. But the tax collector stood at a distance. So if it's a little shady for people to do comparison, it's interesting, Jesus does one right now in the story. Jesus says, this is what the Pharisee did, but let me tell you about the tax collector. And even notice, notice what he says, but the tax collector stood at a distance, which, which means we can infer the tax collector stood at a distance and the posture of the Pharisee was very close, up front, right in the front pew, as close to the Holy of Holies as possible. But the tax collector stood at a distance. Listen, he would not even look up to heaven, which is interesting. Did you ever wonder why people close their eyes when they pray? Did you ever wonder where did that start? It's really interesting. When I, I, when I was preparing for this, I haven't seen many mentions in the Bible, especially the New Testament, about people closing their eyes and praying. This is one of them. So it's interesting. He stood at a distance, and he couldn't even look up to heaven. But he beat his breast, and he said, God, have mercy on me, a sinner. That's profoundly interesting. He's hitting himself. He's punishing himself. And in his prayer, listen, my friends, this tax collector doesn't thank God for anything. He doesn't thank God for a single thing. He didn't even say, well, at least I'm really good at math. 
He doesn't say that at all. You know, because most of us who have stuff in our past, we at least have one area of our lives where we're succeeding, one place where we can self-medicate ourselves and say, well, at least I'm not like Shaji. <laughs> you know, at least I'm not like Hitler. At least I got this. At least I go to church on the regular. At least I'm in community group. At least I serve in church. Most of us have one place. This tax collector got nothing. Do you hear that? Do you see it? Not one thing does he bring to the table. He could, as a Jewish man, at least say, at least I'm not like the Roman guys raping and murdering. He didn't even say that. The tax collector doesn't even do a comparison to the Romans. He's hitting himself. He's punishing himself. And he says, please, please be merciful to me because that's my only shot. That's my only hope. End of prayer. And then comes the surprise ending of the story. Jesus flips the script. Verse 14, Jesus says, I tell you, this man, rather than the other, went home. Oh man, I'm getting goosebumps. This man went home justified before God. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, and he who humbles himself will be exalted. Flips it. Flips it. In the first century, it would have been like, I'm not playing. It would have been scandalous. But if you read, if you ever do a study of Luke, if Metro does one sermon series on Luke, you will see that in almost every single chapter of Luke, from chapter 1 through... Over and over again, there's this recurring theme that Luke does, that the people who should get it, don't. And the people who shouldn't get it, do. Like every single chapter in the gospel according to Luke, you see that over and over again. And here Jesus ends his story. This is unfreaking believable He says, the broken tax collector with his prayer of be merciful to me. He has right standing with God. While the Pharisee, who lives his life honorably and sacrificially offers his money and food, he's the one who is still absolutely broken. Do you know what kind of response that elicited then? You don't have to look very far. Later in chapter 18 and verse 26, when they hear that the ones who should aren't and the ones who shouldn't are, in verse 26 of this same chapter, they go, well, then who can be saved? You know what, how that translates today? What on earth does it mean to be a Christian? When they heard Jesus flipped this script, they said, what does it mean to be your disciple? Because 
something is broken and someone is broken, but what? We, you flipped it. We don't understand it. And we must hear it from him because, first of all, he told the story. And he's the one who passes the judgment at the end. So to understand who or what is broken, we've got to know what Jesus means by brokenness. And we see in this story exactly what he means. Do you know what is broken in the Pharisee's life? And do you know what was broken in the tax collector's life? And do you know what is broken in the life of every human who has ever existed, is existing, and will exist? The one thing that is broken is relationship. It's broken. And the danger that Luke, in giving that little contextual introduction, here's the danger for church people. And if Donnie wants me to care for you, I'm going to try and say this without getting too emotional. The danger is this. You can be really good churchgoers, really good religious people, and you are desperately in danger of being confident in yourself. And if you're confident in yourself, you will never really understand and you will never appreciate why you would need God you would never depend on Him. You would never be able to love Him with all you've got. If you don't, if you're confident in yourself. One time there were Pharisees who actually asked, again, what they asked was, what's the best commandment? But you can translate that back. What does it mean to be a Christian? And in Matthew 22, starting at verse 37, Jesus in response says, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind. That's the great and first commandment. And the second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. On these two commandments depend all the law and the prophets. What does it mean to be a Christian? It's entirely relational, completely. And what do I mean by relation, relational or relationship? A Christian is functioning first in a vertical relationship of love, growing trust, worship, and obedience to God, and horizontal commitment to community to love my neighbor even as I love and care for myself. And this book, cover to cover, is about the story of relationship. How it started, how it was broken, and what God has done about it. Every page Every red letter is about that story. It is the grand narrative of the Bible about how God in Christ and through His Holy Spirit redeems that which is broken. He restores us 
to community with himself so that we can then be restored in relationship with our neighbor. And this then means that brokenness is much, much more than violating a set of rules. Brokenness is much, much more than about bad actions and really, really wrong four-letter words. You remember Brian's sermon out of Psalm 51? I had the pleasure, the benefit of listening to that and benefiting from his teaching. And what I got from Brian's teaching on Psalm 51 a few weeks ago, and I highly commend it to you to either listen to it for the first time or listen to it for a couple of more times. What he was saying is that brokenness is an act of relationship. Or to put it another way, brokenness is violation of relationship. Think of Adam and Eve. The first story in the Bible, okay? One turn of the page. The first story of the Bible. Why did they disobey God? Do you think it's because they didn't know what God wanted? No, they knew. They absolutely knew. So then why did they disobey Him? Because when they had the chance, when they were presented with the opportunity to be like God, to contend with Him, for supremacy and lordship. You know what they did? They gave into their heart's desire to run and rule their own life and not be submitted to another. They gave into self-worship. Why worship him when I can be like him, run my life? I might as well worship myself. Don't nobody know how to scratch my itch like me. entirely relational. Or think of what Brian preached about David and Bathsheba. Listen, do you think, seriously, the king of all Israel didn't know the Ten Commandments, never heard them? You think he did, or do you think he only knew eight of them and the two he didn't know was don't commit adultery and don't murder? No, he knew it. He absolutely knew it. As the king, he had to put that forth. So he knew it real well. So what happened, my friends? What did Brian say happened? David acted because at some point he didn't care what God wanted. And some points I don't either. And I forge ahead. And maybe you do too. David was going to have what his heart desired no matter what. So blink if you want, Lord, for five minutes or get ready for something rated R because I want her and I want him out. And you can't do nothing about it. It is about contending for supremacy. I rule. I am the Lord and ruler of my own life. And so what this means, bottom line, bottom line, please get this. Sin is not first and foremost, breaking the law. Sin is first and foremost brokenness relationally. It is about breaking relationship with God. And when you break relationship with God, it's easy and natural and logical for me to rebel against God's rules. If he's not in charge, why would I tell the truth all the time? You tell me. If he's not in charge, I hide my shameful stuff and put forth my best resume. I go for mine. And if you're in the way, that's too bad. 
It's just natural. It's logical. It makes sense. It's the logical end of someone who says, now I'm the Lord of my life. So back to the story. The tax collector had an utterly broken relationship with God and his own people. They thought he was a traitor. And he knew what he was doing was wrong. He knew because he's in church. He knows the command, thou shalt not, what? Steal. He was stealing. He knew it. Broken here, broken there, utterly broken. He couldn't even look at anyone, not God, not people. He's hitting himself repeatedly. Think of cutting yourself repeatedly, punishing himself. And then he begs, (laughs) he begs God to be merciful. Guilty as charged, he begs God to be merciful. But the Greek rendering of this prayer is actually even more telling, more powerful. I know it says in the English, be merciful to me, a sinner. The Greek is even more powerful. In the Greek, here's what the tax collector actually prays. Let this sink in. Listen to this prayer, which Jesus says God commends it. This is one you ought to memorize. Here's what he says. God, please make a way of mercy for me, the sinner. Not a sinner before a holy God, Psalm 51, against you and you alone have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight. So, Psalm 51 goes on, purge me with hyssop and I can be clean. And if you wash me, even I can be whiter than snow. Mercy. He's pleading for mercy that he doesn't deserve. He's pleading for mercy that he can only receive. And the tax collector, he has enough desperate faith to humbly ask God, to make a way of mercy. Daryl Bach in his commentary writes that the tax collector is actually asking for mercy through atoning, sac- through atoning forgiveness. So if you heard and listened to Brian's pres- as he presided, he talked about that. That debt doesn't go away, folks. It doesn't disappear into the cloud. It's got to be paid down. And this tax collector has the scandalous nerve to say, God, will you pay down my debt and make a way for me. And Jesus says, this man is justified. This man goes home saved. This man is on the path of redemption. This is amazing grace. So what about the Pharisee? Well, I'll tell you why the Pharisee's prayer is problematic. It's not because he's a good guy. Like I told you, pastors and law enforcement officials all over would love guys like him. Here's the problem. The Pharisee is counting on his good works and his good deeds. And so he doesn't even realize that he needs to be saved. He doesn't even know anything is broken because he got this. He's not doing the wrong things. He's doing all the right things. And so, God, all I need is for you to give me the directions. And I got this, John. I got this. You don't need to worry. I don't need God. In fact, I will never be in debt 
to God. Speaking of debt being a four-letter word, here's what the Pharisee is saying. I will never owe you, Lord. I did everything by the book. I don't owe you nothing. Broken. Broken. I don't need God. I don't need a relationship with God. Just tell me what to do. I got this. The Savior, Jesus, was utterly useless to the Pharisee. And that is tragic. That is frightening because the Pharisee thought he was close and he was so far. But today, the good news in East Falls this morning is those who know they're far are on the verge of a miracle, the miracle of mercy. When I intentionally sin, this is what it means. When I intentionally sin, when I do what I shouldn't, and when I don't do what I should, it's actually pretty easy for me to spot the uh, tax collector in me. It's pretty easy, and it's not a big deal for me to be able to say, yeah, it's one of those moments I should sing mercy. <laughs> right? I know, it, it's pretty easy to spot. But you know, um, developing an awareness of my inner Pharisee that's a much more difficult knot to tie, but it's there. And I need the Lord to tell me this story so I can see it. And I need the body of Christ to help me see what I'm blind to so I can repent like Brian preached. When our daughter, our eldest, was growing up, I mean, listen, she was only five, but I was treating her as if she's, you know, I'm dead and how I want her life to go. And she was into lying you know, so when you parent kids as an Indian, you know, the way we shepherd our kids is initially flicks, but at some point it moves on to weapons of mass destruction, and, you know, that's, that's just how we roll, so you all have to embrace it, okay? But, you know, discipline sometimes for a child, an Indian child, can be a matter of life and death. It can feel like it, okay? I'm not saying we kill her. I'm just saying that for a little one, it can feel like, oh, man, am I going to tell the truth or am I going to save my myself. And so she would lie. And this utterly destroyed me on the inside because well into my 40s, I, my, my flesh instinct in many cases, many cases, is to lie, is to pretend, is to be fake. And so when I see it in my progeny, I know which side of the gene pool she was swimming in when that happened. And I blame myself. And so I took it deeply personal every time she lied. She's only five years old, but I took it deeply personal, and I was extrapolating from five to 50 and saying, no. And I, we would discipline her, shining far more redemptively than me. I'm going in trying to crush the sin. I'm talking crush the sin and stop it from happening. But I couldn't. And one day, I'll never forget it, she lied about something where there wasn't even discipline involved. So at least in my mind, I'm thinking, yeah, if you want to avoid a spanking, at least I know you want to lie, but nothing's going to happen, and you're lying. It's starting to be that you can't do anything but lie, and I was devastated. We, ask, ask Shiny. We're talking ugly crying, ugly crying, because I was extrapolating that my daughter is destined for hell, and you ask any parent the thought It's, I can't even fathom that my child 
would be destined for hell, separation from God. Of course, we have a church meeting that night, and I'm a mess. But because we're good at, you know, Southeast Asians, we go. And they're talking about children's ministry. I'm just getting all furious inside children. You know, my child's going to hell, and you want me to talk about the Sunday school curriculum? Somebody save my daughter! You know, and I, 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 and I was very quiet, and my pastor realized this. So at some point, in front of everybody, Sandosh, do you have anything to share? I looked at him and I said, to be honest with you, I could care less about Sunday school. <laughs> and I told them what was happening. The whole church leadership team. I said, this is where I'm at. I'm devastated. Our child lies. and She's five, but I can't stop it. And it's killing me. And they prayed with us. And, you know, some, I know that's the right thing to do, but just I, I wasn't feeling better after the prayer. If I'm honest with you, I was just like, yeah, that, that didn't help. But okay, great, now you're praying now. Um, but one brother came up to me, a counselor, and he said, Jesus sat next to me, and, and he, he, I understand. Yeah, my kid's really an incredible sinner too. And I was like, I know your kid's a sinner. <laughs> you know, I was like, your kid's a tax collector. Mine, you know. Um, so I'm, I'm, I'm going through this, and he asked me a question. I said, why do you want to get rid of all the lying? Why do you want it expunged from your daughter? And I looked at him and I said, man, because I don't want my kid to go to hell. If you want to know the real truth about it, I don't want her to go to hell. And he just nods and he goes, so you're thinking that if she stops lying, she won't go to hell. And we looked at each other. And then I gave him the finger. <laughs> no, I didn't. I didn't. I didn't. But I smiled and I said, I think, I think God just did something in my heart. And I said to him, I think what you're trying to say is, instead of removing the lie, what I should really do is come alongside my daughter and take both of our lies to the one who can give us the mercy we need. That's different than eliminating a need for a savior. Do you hear what I'm saying? It's different than saying, I don't need a savior. It's saying, I need a savior. And since then, that's how Shiny and I have been parenting our kids. When we see the brokenness, we don't, okay, well, she doesn't. I start tanking, but quickly God brings me up and says, this is an opportunity to say, mercy, mercy, as endless as the sea, I'll sing your hallelujah for all eternity. So as I end this, why is brokenness essential to what it means to be a Christian? Because he says in verse 14, Whoever exalts himself is going to be humbled. Whoever humbles himself will be exalted. Now the inner Pharisee licks their chops and goes, Oh, okay, be humble, right. I got that. I can cop that. But here's the thing. Remember, Jesus didn't tell us this just to know the truth. He told us this story so we would love the truth. And here's the truth. Because sin is about breaking relationship, restoration of relationship is the only hope. 
for us in our struggle with sin. And it's only because God is willing to love us in a way that we refuse to love Him that we have any hope, any hope of our brokenness being healed. We need a greater love for Him than we have for ourselves. And His love for us, His love for us is the only thing that has the power, the power to produce that kind of love for Him. A couple of years ago, my good friend Sherwin Kwan preached right here on this very same passage. And I commend that sermon to you too. I listened to it four or five times to let the truth of how he wrapped this up wash over me, literally cleanse me. Sherwin, when he preached, said, yes, it's true. Humility saves us. In fact, it exalts us. But, 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 not first and foremost your own humility. Sherwin goes, there is another. In Philippians chapter 2, and I don't have time, 5 to 11, it says Jesus, who was at the highest place with heaven, came down and lived as one of us. And it says these exact words, he humbled himself. He who was so close came down. He humbled himself and he became obedient even to death on a cross. Jesus humbled himself and was broken. He was broken and rejected not only by you and me, but by people who refused to accept any lordship but our own. And on the cross, Jesus was broken and rejected by his Father. Why? So that broken people could know oneness and acceptance with our Father. It's the ultimate flipping of the script. Jesus allowed his relationship to be torn from limb to limb so you and I could know and experience reconciliation with God and with one another. So don't despise your brokenness, my friends. Embrace it because your brokenness is the means to swim in the sea, the endless sea of mercy. Now, I have a word that my wife gave me as we were coming down Lincoln Drive. And it came straight from the Lord. She said, what about those who have been broken by broken people? Those who have endured trauma? What's the word for them? Beyond believe more. Humble yourself. Look unto Jesus and know that He knows this is a broken world and broken relationships here have broken relationships all over the world and He could have just told us the truth but our Savior did one better. He wanted us to love the truth and so He told us a story in which He comes down he himself, and he is broken at the hands of broken people. So if you have been broken by trauma, he's with you. He knows. And he says, hang on. One day, all things will be made new.
So it's not just to know the truth, but to love him who is the way, the truth, and the life. As the worship team comes, will you pray with me?